Barnes will get him backstage. Ah, don't worry, it's all part of the act. Um, is there a doctor in the house? Yes, I'm a doctor. Oh, could you come up here, sir, please? I'll be right up. Uh, I, t- I told them to use a safety net, but what do I know? I'm only a bear. <laughs> Can I help you up, sir? Thank you. Uh, see, are, are you a real doctor? Of course I'm a real doctor. You want to see my bank balance? Hi-ho, and welcome once again to a feat of lunatic daring, most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, Muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, two cultural content warnings in one week. You know, these episodes are very of their time. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll go into it. Back to back, though. How are you recovering from your march? Uh, somewhat. Everything's still kind of a blur. You know, March is over, and that's what counts. Uh, I don't know when this episode's out, but we're recording it in early April, and yeah, I gotta get my glasses on straight. This is a feed of Lunatic Daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, I'd like to ask you to check us out on social media, at Lunatic Daring, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, lunaticdaring.com for all of our episodes, our bibliography, and our watch list. Uh, also, if you get a chance, please leave us a review or a rating on your podcast app of choice. It helps out a lot. We are currently going through the Muppet Show two episodes at a time. We're already up to episode 10, which, man, this moves fast. Does. I guess when you do two at a time, it moves faster. Twice. <laughs> Twice as fast. <laughs> Ludicrous speed. We got a couple of, uh, tonight, We yeah, like I said, we have a couple with um, the Disney cultural content warning, meaning they have depictions of other cultures, other races, um, other 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 minority groups that are no longer acceptable. Or as Disney says, and I think this is correct, Disney says they were wrong then and are wrong now, but they were more acceptable at the time. They, we both got a, one of them, just one, it's got one little smudge. The other one, it kind of kind of runs through the whole thing. But they're also both really good episodes. So let's get talking about them. You ready to start? Let's get things started. Beverly Sills, 15 seconds for curtain, Beverly. Thank you, Scooter. All right, so I'm going to have a little bit of a confession here. Last week when we said, uh, when I was telling everybody what the next guests were going to be, I said it was going to be with actor Beverly Sills. So I apparently am as clueless as Fozzie Bear as to who Beverly Sills was. (laughs) As long as you're not Sam the Eagle clueless, you're probably doing fine. Sam got it right in this one. Kind of. I was wrong. I thought she was an actress, and uh, she is not, so... She performed on stage. Beverly Sills, at one time known as the Queen of American Opera, was born Belle Miriam Silverman on May 25th, 1929, to Shirley Bond, who was a musician, and Morris Silverman, who was an insurance broker. Her parents immigrated from, I I don't know if they met in the States or back in the old country, but her parents were originally from Odessa, Ukraine, which was part of Russia at the time, in Bucharest, Romania. Beverly, or Belle, as she's known at this point, has been per- or had been performing since the age of three. She won a Miss Beautiful Baby contest at the age of three. She began performing at the age of four on a Saturday morning radio program called Rainbow House. Her name on the show? Bubbles Silverman. I met a Bubbles Silverman in Vegas one time, but it's not appropriate for the show. She began taking singing lessons with Estelle Liebling at age seven. I'm going to put up my usual disclaimer here in establishing that I am not cultured. So some of the names that I rattle, rattle off might mean a lot to people that are more familiar with opera and classically trained musicians. I'm just going to mark down, uh, Nick thinks he isn't cultured on my bingo sheet. 
Yeah, no, that's, oh God, is there a bingo sheet? There's probably a bingo sheet. Fans, if there's a bingo sheet, I don't know if I want to (laughs) know. She began taking singing lessons with Estelle Liebling at age seven. She sang in a short film called Uncle Saul Solves It a year later, uh, by which time she had changed from going by Bubbles Silverman to going by Beverly Sills. It's probably the right choice. As all of this is happening, she is raised in Brooklyn. She spoke Yiddish, Russian, Romanian, French, and English as a child. I realize that I haven't quite done enough with my life. At age 10, she was the winner of the October Major Bose Amateur Hour radio program, which was sort of an on-ramp to other appearances in that the following month, she would appear on Bose's Capital Family Hour, which is a weekly variety show. Uh, That would be her first appearance, but she would appear frequently after that. She attended Erasmus Hall High School in Brooklyn, as well as Manhattan's Professional Children's School. In 1945, she made her professional stage debut with a Gilbert and Sullivan touring company produced by J. Jacob Schubert. They played played 12 cities in the U.S. and Canada, and during this time, she performed seven different Gilbert and Sullivan operas. In her 1987 autobiography, she credited this tour with helping her develop her comedic timing. In 1946, she appeared as a contestant on the radio show Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, but she had to sing under a pseudonym of Vicky Lynn because she was still under contract to Schubert. And he didn't want Godfrey to be able to say that he discovered Beverly Sills if she won. She didn't win. In 1947, she made her operatic stage debut as Frasquita in Bizet's Carmen with the Philadelphia Civic Grand Opera Company. As we're going through this, she is constantly working. I will rattle off some of the performances that she was in. We're going to gloss over a few of them because she worked consistently and she worked hard. She toured North America with the Charles with the Charles Wagner Opera Company for most of the 50s, playing a variety of roles. Um, she would marry Peter Greenoff in this time, who was a journalist for the Cleveland, Ohio newspaper, The Plain Dealer, which is a name for a newspaper. <laughs> uh And she moved to Cleveland to be with him. They had two children, Meredith, uh, who was known as Muffy. Um, Meredith was deaf. She was severely deaf, and she suffered from multiple sclerosis. And Peter Jr., who was known as Bucky, suffered a number of other mental disabilities. The issues that her children faced would cause her to limit the range of places she would go to perform or participate in different things during her career. Uh, And this would be part of why she would become known as the queen of American opera, just because she didn't really do international. Uh, The family moved to Milton, Massachusetts. Uh, She sang the title role of Massenet's Manon with the Opera Company of Boston, which would be the first of many roles that she would do for director Sarah Caldwell. Um, In 1966, the New York City Opera revived Handel's opera, Syria, Julio Cesar, um, where Sills would perform as Cleopatra and this role in particular boosted her to becoming an international star. In 69, she sang Zerbinetta in the American premiere of Richard Strauss's Ariadne Auf Naxos. Uh, with the Boston Symphony, she would be on the cover of Time in 1971, where she would be described, I believe, for the first time as America's Queen of Opera. In 1974, she would undergo a successful surgery for ovarian cancer, and then she healed really quickly because she opened The Daughter of the Regiment at the SF Opera a month after that. So she's just like a, a massive workhorse this entire time. Just I, I haven't listed all of the credits, but she doesn't really stop. She made her debut at the New York Metropolitan Opera on April 7th, 1975 in the Siege of Corinth. She received an 18-minute ovation, standing ovation at the curtain call, which seems long to me, but I don't think I've ever been to an opera, so I don't know if that's par for course. 
So at this point in time, opera is still something that is, which I don't know if it's still the case today, but it was something that was particularly for rich people. Yeah, it still is. Yeah, I'm not cultured. Uh, but it's, a, it's a little more accessible, I would say, than it used to be. Hmm. But still, I, I've been to a whopping one opera in my life. Beverly would give a number of recitals and performances with symphonies and otherwise bring her talents to people that wouldn't see her. She also made a number of talk show appearances to make opera seem more approachable. She appeared on Johnny Carson and Dick Cavett and a number of others. She would actually end up hosting her own talk show, Lifestyles with Beverly Sills, which ran on Sunday mornings for two years in the late 70s and won her an Emmy. In 1978, which is before our Muppet Show appearance, she announced that she would retire on October seventh, on October twenty seventh, nineteen eighty, in a farewell gala at the New York City Opera. In nineteen seventy nine, she began acting as the co director of the New York City Opera, and would later become sole director as of the fall season of that year. She would hold this position until nineteen eighty nine, and remain on that board until nineteen ninety one. During this time, she's all, she also contributed to a number of arts causes and charities and things like the March of Dimes. From 1994 to 2002, she was the chairwoman of the Lincoln Center, and she agreed to serve as the chairwoman of the Metropolitan Opera in October of 2002, but she would resolve in January of 2005 due to continuing family health issues. Uh, Peter, her husband, would pass away on September 6th of 2006. The following year, on June 28th, she was hospitalized and gravely ill due to lung, lung cancer. She would pass away on July 2nd at the age of 78. She is buried in the Sharon Gardens in Kinsico Cemetery in Valhalla, New York, which I was not aware there was a Valhalla, New York, but it makes sense that after the life that she leads or life that she led, she would absolutely end up in a place called Valhalla. Shiny and chrome. My French is terrible. I'm not going to pronounce and my Italian's probably worse. I'm not going to pronounce most of the names of the operas that she was in, but the list is long. And on top of all of that, she was a wonderful host. Excuse me. On top of all of that, she was a wonderful guest for The Muppet Show. That I agree with. So, The Muppet Show, number 409, featuring guest star Beverly Sills, was produced between June 26th and June 28th, 1979. It would premiere in the UK November 16th of 1979 and stateside on November 8th of the same year and directed by Philip Casson. We get to our cold open. Uh, Scooter does what Scooter does and that he goes in to let Beverly know that, well, it's, it's almost time. So I was a little bit worried. This was actually my bigger nightmare fuel moment of these two episodes tonight because oh, really? she, oh, okay. she hits a, she hits a high note and uh, Scooter's glasses shatter. But the thing is, Scooter's, Scooter's eyes are in his glasses. So I got a little bit of like an Andalusia thing going. And it like Scooter was still smiling. I don't know if that makes it more or less disturbing. We start off with body horror uh, as opposed to weird uncanny <laughs> valley things. It's a weird look for Scooter. It's upsetting. It's not not upsetting. It's a little upsetting. We go to the Muppet Show theme where Gonzo sticks the the trumpet up to his ear and well plays by ear and we mentioned that there is a cultural content warning on this episode sure is if you blink you'll miss it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's over so fast and it's so nonsensical that it's still it's not a well-written joke it could have been replaced by a thousand other jokes that weren't an issue but it doesn't seem like there's any malice behind it it's just i think it's i'm gonna i'm gonna cancel myself it's racist, but it's 
at the same time, it's also funny. The premise of the joke is funny. Well, it it leans into absurdity. It's it's word salad, yeah. right? That doesn't mean the racism that- isn't funny. The the concept of the joke is funny, right? It's j- they were just randomly throwing things into a blender. I don't think there was anything. They they literally were going through their prop room, found a hat that was probably a leftover from the Spike Milligan episode, and was like, "It's a Chinese gorilla." But at the start of the show, yeah. Statler and Waldorf complain that opening numbers are too weird, which is ridiculous because the opening numbers for this season have consistently been amazing and pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, but they ask, "What do you have tonight? A Chinese gorilla dancing ballet?" Which I, yeah, I don't know. Um, Here's again, the joke that Kermit then goes, uh, cancel the opening number. Cause that's exactly what he has booked, mm-hmm. which is a Chinese gorilla to do ballet. That's fine. That's funny. It's just when the gorilla comes on stage, that's even okay, but it's got big buck teeth and it talks in like a Ching Chong type way. Yeah. And so it's the depiction of Chinese that is offensive. Uh, while the joke itself is funny. Yeah. Kermit's pretty tired of Statler and Waldorf talking all sorts of smack, and he asks what they would do for an opening number, which leads us to what is probably our most unexpected opening number of the season, at least so far. Funny you should ask. Yes, we do have some ideas about that. We have a secret recipe. That's true. Concocted with much skill. Yes. And once you've tried our special dish... That's right! You'll never get your fill. Take ten terrific girls, but only nine costumes, and you're cooking up something grand. (laughs) Also one of our best. Yeah. They throw together a burlesque number uh, with a song called Take Ten Terrific Girls which honestly might have gotten us a cultural content warning by itself. Let's roll with it. (laughs) The number starts, or the number stars 10 terrific girls, but as the lyrics suggest, only nine costumes, which sounds like a joke that would have been set up in the magazines that I stole and wasn't allowed to read as a small child. Statler and Waldorf do a couple of old vaudeville style jokes during the number, but it's, it's just fun. It's still weird to see them not seated because they've got very long legs. Them, they're them kind of moving as freely as they were and kind of dancing around and backstage when they're setting up the number. There was something weird about it because you just don't see them acting like they're just acting like Muppets, but also, but you you don't see them acting like Muppets very often. They're like, even if I show up at the opera house every week, I don't think they're just going to let me as a random guy who randomly buys tickets, come back and start calling shots behind the stage. They don't give them a choice. Fair. Still. They're scary Muppets. Um, they could have sicked animal on them, which would have been hilarious. This is a big fun number. It is. It's a lot of fun. You get a couple of random jokes, which how did the girls respond to this? They enjoyed it. They, I, I don't, they didn't know what was going on. Uh, they, they seemed to enjoy it. What do you get when you pour wa- wa- boiling water down a rabbit hole? Um, <laughs> yeah. Hot cross bunnies. I think my youngest got that cause she's learning hot cross buns on the piano. <laughs> works that's the only reason why she would know what that is but um yeah and they got these these jazzy uh pink suits that they're wearing this is a. this isn't the first time we've seen annie this season is it no she no she was she showed up in the john denver one Hmm. but yeah we've got annie sue is one of the chorus girls we've got uh 
Janice is one of the chorus girls. And we do have our 10th dancer who is in her under, under things. Yeah. Because she doesn't have a costume. Because it's a song for dirty old men, apparently. <laughs> Burlesque is for dirty old men. That tracks, actually. Uh, yeah. The song itself was written by Charles Strauss and Lee Adams for the 1968 movie The Night They Raided Minsky's, which... Never heard of it. Never heard of it. Uh, it. It's like the name makes me think Porky's, but I don't know. The thing that they would have been remiss if they didn't do, and I'm glad they absolutely did, is they brought Fozzie up to the balcony. What do you get when you pour boiling water down a rabbit hole? Hot cross bunnies! Boo! Yes! Get off the stage! Tell me, Mr. Statler, why do bees hum? I don't know, Mr. Waldorf. Why do bees hum? Because they don't know the words. Oh. <laughs> no good. Not funny. What do you know? Yeah. Bring on the bear. You know that Ozzy's been waiting four years for that, just to be like, so it's my turn. It's my turn in the box. Yeah, and then I, what I really liked at the end, too, is then when it's all over and they have this big, amazing number, and then it cuts back to Statler and Waldorf in the box. Why can't they do numbers like that? We just did. Yeah, so you did. Yeah, wasn't very good after all. Yeah. Ooh, Ooh, terrible. And they're and then they then they tur- immediately turn on it. They're like, yeah, it wasn't that good anyway. Boo! <laughs> like they turned on their own opening number because the Muppets did it. Of course. Because they realized they had become Muppets for a few minutes. They can't enjoy the show. <laughs> no, they can't, even if they're the ones putting it on. We go backstage where Scooter informs Kermit that his bike is being stolen, which that's... No, that, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Scooter informs Kermit that he is that he helped someone steal his bike. Uh, yeah, okay. Kermit! Yeah, Scooter. Somebody outside was trying to break the combination lock on your bicycle, but I stopped him. Oh, good. What did you do? I told him the combination. Which, why would Scooter know? Why would you let Scooter know that? Uh, see, I can see Scooter knowing he's the gopher. Okay. He's the gopher. You, the go- gophers have stuff like that, man. They've got keys that nobody else have. They they know phone numbers and you know, gophers, assistants, things like that. I, I believe he would know the, the lot because he can go get Kermit's bike if he has to. But Scooter, though. You know, he's still paying him and his uncle will find out next episode. His uncle still owns the theater. That's true. We get our first number with... Oh, sorry. I'm skipping ahead. Kermit runs off to recover his bike and asks Fozzie to introduce Beverly Hills. And in a pure Sam the Eagle moment, Fozzie assures Scooter that he knows all about Beverly Hills. Like, keeping in mind, I don't look into the bios until after I've watched the episode, so it doesn't really color the perspective or anything like that. I knew nothing about Beverly Hills. And we have so many country stars on The Muppet Show that. <laughs> when Fozzie introduced her as such, I was like, okay, I buy it. Um, maybe she does opera and country. I didn't really listen to either genre, so it's possible. I don't know. Fozzie introduces her as one of the great singers of country and Western music. Beverly sold me the second she stepped on and just went with it. She's like, anytime she's on stage during this episode, sells it 110%. Yeah, she kills it. Um, she sings a song called When the Bloom is on the Sage, and she does it in operatic style. She also tap dances because they realize partway through that someone messed up, to which my the note bear, was... She even says, go get me that bear. Yeah. <laughs> can the Sills dance? Yes, she can. What, what was it about 
it's not it's not so much then, but back then in the seventies and, and earlier, what is it with tap dancing? Like it was a thing that like almost every entertainer knew how to do, yet everyone seemed impressed by. They would do it on if you knew how to tap dance, you were gonna do it on a talk show, even if you were a director. I think it's one of the like I, I say this is someone that doesn't know how to tap tap dance, but it just seems like one of the fundamentals. Like you need to be able to be coordinated. It's just funny to me. I just we we just saw it. We've seen tap dancing this season already. Mm-hmm. Well, she sings. So so yes, yeah, she tap dances, but she also sings, mm-hmm. and she sings this country song with her opera voice, which sounds very weird, but is also awesome. Mm-hmm. She sounds great. Um, you can you know I mean we got a little bit of it at the beginning, but obviously she's got man that voice is just raw power (laughs) and the impression created is that like this is in fact not something that you would do with an operatic talent is to sing a country western song but it seems natural to her like even as she's playing against this not being something that she normally does she does a great job yeah Yeah. she's in full control of her voice she's been singing since she was four like but she's got that great moment though when kermit comes out kermit realizes what's going on and he goes out there and he apologizes to her and she goes get out of the way i'm just i'm starting to get the hang of this (laughs) That was a great moment. And then she delivers the, the, the rest of the song with more relish and, um, and bring it, they bring in Lubbock glue and the, the, the huggers really great opening number for this guest uh, star. From there, we, we go backstage uh, where we find out that there's going to be an opera and Miss Piggy is thrilled to find out, but she's doing that thing that I guess is just sort of an old hat thing. And anytime there's an audition for something that, a character on a show feels overly qualified for. They just start doing the thing. Oh yeah, she's going around talking like a Sondheim character, where she doesn't say, she doesn't speak her dialogue. She starts singing her dialogue. Piggy just wants, she just wants a chance to be in the opera. That's all. She's a star. The opera itself is called Pigoletto, which <laughs> is probably a play on something else that on Rigoletto. Rigoletto, Rigoletto. is that it? Yeah. Yeah, um, it makes me think of Pidgeotto. From there, we haven't seen as much of the Muppet Newsman this this season so far. We get a good amount of them tonight. Here's a Muppet Newsflash. Soprano Beverly Sills withdrew her announced plans to retire from the operatic stage. I'll be singing opera until the cows come home, she said today in a... I don't think the Muppet Newsman has ever expected that he would identify with Mufasa as much as he actually did in that moment. <laughs> Especially since Mufasa didn't exist yet. But, all right. I don't know. It depends on who you believe. I think Kimba the White Lion might have been out at that point. Okay. Uh, I didn't think about Mufasa, but I just thought about the fact that as soon as he said the word cows, he knew what was happening. Oh, absolutely. So, a cow was either going to run him over or a cow was going to fall on him. Those are the two options mm-hmm. in Muppet Land. Those are the two options. We go back to Beverly's dressing room where Gonzo comes in. And Gonzo, you know, the thing that we need to give Gonzo credit for is the fact that he's always looking to improve his craft and he's never afraid not to be the smartest person in the room. Like if someone else might know more than he does, he just wants to seek out the information. Yeah, he's an, he's an innovator. He's curious. Exactly. And he wanted... He's always iterating. <laughs> it's true. He wants to demonstrate his new art form, uh, spoon hanging, which with a nose like that makes sense. But at the other side of the door, Sam for once does seem like he's in the know and he knows what Beverly does, but he goes in and he sees the spoon hanging from her nose, which I don't remember what cereal it was, but there was some nineties commercial I saw for something that just had people putting spoons on their noses, which I I don't know. It's 
Gen X marketing or something. This is a, a fine bit. It's something that you could blink and miss. It's not going to be something that I remember past this episode, but it's it's fun. And I, I have a problem with it. What's that? Sam gets it right. Sam under Sam knows that she's a, an opera star. He knows that she runs the New York City Ballet. Ballet. He, she, that would make sense if he thought she ran the ballet. But he's he's apparently done a lot of reading since the narrative episode. I don't think he has. I think he's. This is just one of his broken clock moments. But no. like <laughs> the other, the other thing about it is we're going to see a couple of deviations from form on this in the next episode. But this this could easily be one of them. But just felt out of character to me for him to be correct. We get to what is probably the most nightmare fuel, which it, it insanity, Nick. It's insanity. It's just like those old Quizno commercials with those weird things saying they love the moon. But are you Kate? spot this episode is an opera number performed by the fuzz brothers which i'm pretty sure is jim and someone else who had a beard singing upside jerry, down it's jerry nelson it's jerry, jim and jerry nelson jim and jerry and uh, like the note that i put in for this because they they look strange and upsetting but i just said that these are the bastard children of pizza the hut and barry gibb <laughs> i don't know if there's a better way to describe what we were looking at and the performance is great uh i, I is. imagine the camera was just hung upside down or something but yeah, yeah. Jim and Jerry are upside down. I mean, I don't know if they're physically upside down, but their their heads are upside down. Their beards are, are filling it. Are sets are um are the hair of the character. They have nose and eyes glued onto their chins, basically. And uh, yeah, and you know they do that thing where you're upside down and you make a little basically nose and you know mouth kind of you know you turn a human head upside down like that and it does look like a little bit like a, a face. Hmm. and uh, they're taking that to the extreme and they're singing a nonsense opera where they're just making noises but the way they're moving and the way there's pure insanity and 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 oh it was I did, I've never seen this before as soon as they came up on screen I was like what is this do not understand what I'm I mean I understand what I'm looking at but what is this we go back to Beverly in her dressing room where Miss Piggy visits in order to audition for Pigaletto. But you know what? With pigs, I don't know how this actually works out in terms of animal psychology or anything like that. But on The Muppet Show, pigs tend to move in force and in mass. And if one pig shows up somewhere, there's a good chance that a good number of other pigs are going to show up. And so the room is filled with auditioning pigs, including Dr. Strange Pork, who's playing the kazoo. Link, who is in his pigs in space uniform, trying out for a basketball team. <laughs> that killed my oldest daughter. That killed her. If you're going to cross the line, you have to cross it twice. When he comes in, he's like, when he comes in, he's like, is this the audition for the basketball team? She died laughing. And then he's sitting there trying to dribble the ball. Whoever, whoever's operating him is trying to dribble the ball. The amazing part about that is I can absolutely imagine Piggy telling him, like, sarcastically that it's an audition for a basketball team and him believing her 100%. Yeah, I don't know how he got there, but it's really good. It's like she just um, canceled the Pigs in Space bit. And he's like, why? And she's like, for the audition. The audition for a basketball team? Yes, for a basketball team. I can't believe Crazy Harry's just leaving his explosive devices laying around, though. I think he and Beverly worked something out. I think Beverly is very much in control of whatever. Like, so you've got... When you talk about a diva in pre Beyonce years, one of the first <laughs> I, one of the first thoughts that would come to mind would be an opera star. Like she wanted things done in a specific way, et cetera, et cetera. Beverly, do you date everything to Beyonce? No, people that do that kind of scare me. But like in 
in Beverly's play case, I do think that it's entirely likely that she was a control freak on some level, but I also see a lot of the pragmatism that would come with that. And it does like on every time we see her on this episode, even if something unexpected is happening, she's very much in control of her circumstances. Maybe Harry doesn't know that his explosive's missing, and maybe she's perfectly fine with that. But she uses it to shut up the pigs, which I thought was a nice touch. It's the only way she get the pig's attention is just to let off a Muppet explosion. Well, when pigs fly, I feel bad for making that joke. You're probably going to cut it out. It's fine. But all... The- <laughs> well, now that you said that, probably not. Oh. All the pigs just want to be in the show. But the good news is all the pigs get to be in the show. I mean, it is called Pigaletto. Mm-hmm. We've seen the outside of the theater, right? Where are all these farm animals for most of the show? <laughs> I don't know. Kermit later mentions that they have dressing rooms, so I have no idea. (laughs) Maybe the theater is just a lot bigger than we realize, and it's not just the boiler room and the creepy cafeteria. Yeah, there must be somewhere else. There must be some kind of annex that's got a bunch more dressing rooms in it, or maybe they have trailers out back or something. But all the pigs being let in doesn't sit well with the other farm animals who come to complain to Kermit that they can sing opera too, uh, which just brings on a series of puns. Opera puns. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you know, for the kids. Well, there's an opera for us cows. What's that? Madam Buttermilk. Yeah. yeah. Hey, there's one for us goats, too. Hmm? Goat or Damarung. Mm. Yeah. Watch your language. Yeah. And there's even an opera for us otters, too. What's that? La Traviata. Yeah. Oh, that, that's enough, then. Come on, back to your dressing rooms. Come on, get out of here. Go on, go on, go on. Scram, scram, scram. Uncle Kermit, yeah. there's an opera for little frogs like me, too. Really? Low and green. Right, exactly. <laughs> I knew what some of these were. The only reason that I know about Madam Butterfly is because I was a Weezer geek for a while. Yeah, Madam Butterfly and La Traviata, I know. Otter um, Damarung uh, sounds kind of familiar, but I, I couldn't tell you anything about it. I'm just watching it going, my kids are just sitting there like, I have no idea what these people are talking about. <laughs> And I was like, neither do I. It's okay. Oh, right. There is an actual, like, proper nightmare fuel segment for this episode. <laughs> so we're getting a lot of Sam this episode. Which is good. We haven't, seen, we haven't seen him in a while. We haven't seen a lot of Sam for a minute. But on stage, Sam the Eagle presents Muppet University, which I hope isn't a recurring bit because I just want to see him teach us about things. Sam Nye the Science Eagle. He looks through a microscope at a water drop and we just see protozoan versions of the Muppets. So here's the thing that I'm realizing about these Elseworld versions of the Muppets. This is probably about as close as we're going to get to a proper Muppet zombies thing, where they're just, or like Invasion of the Muppet Snatchers, where they're just not quite themselves. We see Kermit the Protozoa and Fozzie Amoeba performing like a sort of a vaudeville shtick. Hi-ho, Kermit the Protozoa here. Show we have for you. And now to kick things off, here he is, the king of the single cell comics, Fozzy Amoeba. Yeah! Hey, 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 a funny thing happened to me on the way to the microscope. This blob came up to me and said, I haven't had a disease in weeks, so I bit him. But this takes me back to like weird early 90s horror video games, like Splatterhouse or Aliens Ate My Neighbors or something like that, where it's just like there's this weird. Very loud, very bright horror. Sam wants to look inside a water droplet. And when he looks inside the water droplet, he finds a microscopic version of the Muppet Show. (laughs) Yeah, but like... To his chagrin. To his chagrin. Can we talk about Protozoa or Fozzie the Amoeba for a second? He looks like a starfish. 
sort of, but also like the the face and it just it's upsetting. It's hard to explain it why not, it's upsetting. It's a little upsetting. It's not it's not necessarily pleasant looking, and Kermit's eyes are really whacked out. Backstage, Kermit tells Sam that he thinks things went well, which you know how Kermit is about compliments. So, you know, especially the protozoa. At which point Scooter arrives to tell Kermit that everything is set for the closing number, except for with the spear carriers who are demanding money. Which, yeah, if you're going to pay anyone, you should probably pay the people carrying that, the actual weapons. They're carrying the weapons, yeah, as, as they learn. <laughs> Kermit says no until we see a couple of spears get lodged into the desk, which is a very sturdy desk for all the abuse that it's taken at this point. I think the second time they've done that desk uh, spear desk bit. From there, we move into Pigaletto, our closing number. Just chaos. Just, well, I mean, everybody's a star, especially if you upstage everyone else on stage. <laughs> Beverly performs Pigaletto with a chorus of upstaging pigs, including Link Hogthrob, Julia Strangepork, and Miss Piggy is Cleopatra, which makes more sense to me now that I know that that's the role that made her an international superstar. The name Pigaletto's spoof of Rigoletto, which Chad mentioned earlier, but the music being performed is also taken from La Traviata, Carmen, Aida, and I think these might all be things that she performed before this point as well. Beverly gets into a Who Can Sing Higher contest with Miss Piggy. Yeah, which, which Frank, goes... Frank in this section... <laughs> I lo- like when... If you'll forgive the pun... With, when Frank goes ham as Miss Piggy, it's always an absolute tree. Like, it, it ends with... I, I think Frank knows he's outdone after a certain point because Miss Piggy just drops an octave. She's just like, low note. My favorite part is uh, one the some of the pigs come out marching, singing, this is the only opera I know. <laughs> and then at one point, the group of pigs that have Link and um, Julius in them uh, start singing, God Bless America. <laughs> Because Kermit introduces it as the unknown and unrehearsed, unrehearsed opera. Operatic improv so, sounds dangerous. Yeah, that's basically what it is. It's operatic improv when only one person on stage knows anything about opera. Can we talk about the wig that Miss Piggy was wearing, though? Can we talk about the shimmy back and forth, Cleopatra, Tyler, the creator. Grammy winner, Tyler, the creator. Grammy winner, Tyler, the creator wig. Like with a full shimmy every time Frank moves Miss Piggy's head. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a good look. But we get to our closing number, and Beverly Sills tells Kermit that she enjoyed doing the Muppet Show almost as much as performing opera. And Gonzo comes back with a spoon on his nose to ask if that means she'll be giving up spoon hanging. And I feel like there's like an unspoken backstage story between Gonzo and Beverly, which is not unlike the Madeline Kahn one, but just a bit more subdued because he's got Camilla now. But I think Gonzo thought he'd found a kindred spirit, and to a degree he had, but, you know, she's got higher priorities. Like I said, I clearly didn't know anything about her because I thought she was just an actress. Um, But uh, Beverly Sills won her way into my heart very quickly and was a great guest. She was phenomenal every time she was on screen. She was great. You ever had any Kenny Rogers chicken? Is that a euphemism? No. Is he like Jimmy Dean? Does he have his own like? He has a chain of chicken restaurants. I was not aware. No, I've never had. Oh, you never seen uh, Kenny Rogers roasters? No. (laughs) Yeah, he had a chain of chicken restaurants that are that are like KFCs. He actually, well, we'll get into it. Kenneth Ray Rogers was born August twenty first, nineteen thirty eight, in Houston, Texas, the fourth of eight children. His mother was a nursing assistant, and his father a carpenter. In 49, when he was 11, Kenny won his first talent show at the Texan Theater. 
He was the first in his family to graduate high school, like the first in like any of his family to graduate high school. And after graduation from Jefferson Davis, he worked as a busboy and swept floors at a hat store. This was either before or during his time at the University of Houston. I didn't find much about how he got his start in music, but in 1957, he had a minor hit called That Crazy Feeling. He joined a jazz group that didn't last very long. During this time, he worked as a writer and a session musician for other acts. In 66, he joined a group called the New Christy Minstrels, singing and playing bass. Unsatisfied, Kenny took several members of the band with him and formed a unit called The First Edition, later called Kenny Rogers and The First Edition. They had several pop and country hits, including But I Know I Love You, Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town, and for those big Lebowski fans out there, just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in. The band was together for almost a decade, breaking up in 76, and Kenny went solo. My mom actually had lunch with Kenny Rogers in the first edition. My grandmother worked at a fancy restaurant that was attached to a fancy hotel in downtown Columbus, Ohio. And uh, so if someone was coming into town on tour or something like that, they usually stayed at this hotel. And uh, the two most miserable people she said she ever met, by the way, as far as like how they treated the waitstaff, how they treated her, she was a hostess, Bill Cosby and Pete Rose. I don't know who Pete Rose is, but Bill Cosby is cast in an entirely different light now, so I don't <laughs> but take that particular bit of information. Pete Rose is one of the greatest baseball players of all time, um, who is banned for life from baseball for cheating, for, for gambling on baseball while he was still a player and a manager. But anyway, so my grandmother called home. This has got to be in the early 70s. My grandmother called and said, hey, Kenny Rogers is here. And my mom came into her mom's work. She was just a teenager and ended up sitting with Kenny Rogers in the first edition and having lunch. Over Kenny's solo career, he would chart more than 60 top 40 singles, including two number ones, and release albums for nearly 40 years. His first big hit was the single Lucille in 1977. You picked a fine time to leave me, Lucille. With four hungry children and a crop in the field. I've had some bad times, lived through some sad times. It went five times platinum and made him a star. Other songs throughout the years are Love Lifted Me, Coward of the County, uh, Every Time Two Fools Collide, She Believes in Me, Islands in the Stream with Goddess Dolly Parton, and in 1978, his best-known track, The Gambler. He had a super long music career, um, but what else was he up to? He did a bit of acting. Uh, his most significant big screen role was that of stock car racer Brewster Baker in 1982's family comedy Six Pack. The movie has a very young Anthony Michael Hall and a very young Diane Lane as two of the kids that Brewster's basically adopts to be his pit crew. It's not a good movie, but I have a huge nostalgic love for it and its theme song, the top 10 hit, Love Will Turn You Around. Let's your mind that tricks you into 
Kenny starred in TV films based on his songs, most notably Coward of the County and The Gambler. Actually, there were five Gambler movies, uh, the Western series running from 1980 to 1994. He got into sponsoring racers, wrote a memoir, owned a chain of chicken joints called Kenny Rogers Roasters, which he founded with one of the founders of Kentucky Fried Chicken. He was married five times and had five children. In 2017, he was diagnosed with bladder, bladder cancer and died on March 20th, 2021 at the age of 81. He is interred in Atlanta. Fun fact, Kenny was on late night Conan O'Brien and did a taste test of various chicken restaurants, and he could not identify his own out of the lineup. To save face, he claimed that he was more of a burger guy. That's rough. Oh, is that rough? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know how I talk about um, sitting in the back of my parents' car in the 70s and the the albums they would play? Mm. Uh, Air Supply, John Denver things like that. Kenny Rogers was in heavy rotation, heavy rotation when I was a kid. Muppet Show episode 410, special guest star Kenny Rogers, produced July 1979, released that fall, um, directed by Peter Harris. So right off the bat, we earn our cultural content warning. Just right in there, just right in the cold open. Bam. Kenny is uh, in there and there's all sorts of pipes now in the, in the in the in the dressing room and he's trying to figure what's going on. Scooter comes in to give him his curtain call. He's like, Scooter, I don't want to be ungrateful, but what is all this mess in here? And he goes, oh, you remember my uncle who owns the theater? Yeah, he sold the mineral rights to the theater, <laughs> which is a funny joke. And this, so it's all oil rig equipment in the dressing room and all throughout the theater, we'll see. The problem is that the people running the oil wells, the people he sold the rights to are Arabs are traditional, stereotypical 1970s Arabs. It's not the first time they've rolled out this joke either. No, it's not the first time they've used them. Now, it's important to remember that, uh, as Disney Plus says, not not okay then, not okay now. However, it's also important to remember that in 1979, we are talking post-Munich Olympics, post Iran hostage or during the Iran hostage crisis, talking the oil embargo, you know, the oil high, uh, gasoline prices are through the roof. That was around the period where the quote unquote Arab became um, a stereotype for us. You know, the rich sheik, the rich oil baron um, uh, and things like that. You know, they don't depict them as terrorists or anything, but there's a. De- depicted as sort of like the Ross Pro of the world where you just throw money at things to fix it. Yes, yes. And that is a stereotype of kind of Middle Eastern people um, or of a particular type of Middle Eastern people, a per- Middle Eastern person, I guess. This is going to carry on through the entire episode. So we're only going to really talk about it once. The other thing is the episode still sings beautifully without it. Like the, you it, could cut it. Yeah. You could cut all of this and still, it might be a little bit short, but you'd still have a full episode. That's the thing. That's probably the worst about this runner with the, um, the drilling is that it is a completely unnecessary for the episode. It adds nothing. The episode would be completely fine without it. Um, so it, it's kind of a shame because, uh, as we'll go on, I think the episode's pretty great. So, um, it's, it's kind of a shame. It's got this little black spot on it. And, uh, at the end of the theme, Gonzo actually gets a note out of his trumpet just blows his trumpet, but it sounds really terrible. And uh, Gonzo asks if you were expecting Rachmaninoff, who I thought was more famous for playing the piano than the trumpet. But what do I know? We get a nice surprise. We get the red curtain. And who comes out to introduce us? Not Kermit the Frog, but... The one, the only. Miss Piggy Lee. She is dressed up like a circus barker. Mm-hmm. And she's got her little cane and a top hat. And she's looking very jaunty. 
And uh, she explains that the reason she's out there and not Kermit is because Kermit has agreed to be in the next act. And so she is introducing it. And the curtains part, and Kermit is on top of a trapeze. <laughs> so here's the thing, the other thing about this episode. I think it's a great episode. I love this episode. But it's painful to see Kermit get hurt so much. My kids didn't love it because of that. It's it's rough my, for my me. Little, my little one was upset. She loves Kermit and she loves Robin and she was she was upset by this. Mm. So uh, Piggy starts singing the daring young man on the flying trapeze, uh, which is an old song. Uh, it's almost as old as the Civil War. And she doesn't get very far, though, because we go up to the top of the trape- trapeze, trapeze, the trapeze, and Kermit's going to swing. But, but for some reason, listen, it's his own damn fault. He's got Beauregard as his spotter. Why do you pick Bo as your spotter? Just seems like a bad idea. If there's one thing that Bo needs to focus on, if Bo only has to focus on one thing, it's not a bad idea. In this case, it's still a pretty bad idea because you think that Bo only has to focus on one thing, but it's it's not just the one thing. No, because he has to focus on pushing him and he has to focus on his comprehension of the English language. I don't know how she gets me into these things. Are you ready, Kermit? Yeah. Just don't push me hard. What? Push me hard. Okay. And then Bo pushes Kermit really hard like he doesn't want to. And he goes flying and just slams into the side of the theater. <laughs> just slams into the side of the theater. The funniest moment, though, is when Piggy dives to the ground to get to him. Do you notice that? I, yeah. I just can imagine Frank just flopping to the ground with Piggy <laughs> on his arm. I will also say that Gonzo wasted no time. He is very quick with that compliment uh, to let Kermit know that it's a terrific act and see if he wants a partner. Uh, everyone thinks Kermit is severely wounded. Kermit is not. It, 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 his own words, he's just got a twisted flipper. He's just basically, he's basically just twisted his ankle. Mm. But everyone's going to act like this is a real big deal. Well, you don't let Kermit get hurt unless it's Miss Piggy doing the hurting. Yeah, it is funny to watch her be so upset about Kermit getting hurt when she has beaten the shit out of him many times. Remember, uh, <laughs> it wasn't Cheryl Ladd when he brought her in to be... When oh, she brought yeah. him in she just to be just routinely. to be her dummy. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, she cares if he gets hurt. It's different if someone else does it. So Fozzie gets on stage and he does the traditional. Uh, is there a doctor in the house? And uh, an old man comes up and says, I am a real doctor. Do you want to see my bank balance? Because there's a lot of jokes in the Muppet Show about doctors being rich. I don't know if doctors are still rich. I'm guessing they are. I mean, the health. The, I mean, American health care is a um, disaster. Yeah, that's a whole other tangent. So Kermit's fine, but for some reason he's surround. Okay. So Kermit is backstage. He's telling everybody he's fine. He is surrounded by people who work for him, but instead of looking at any of them, he looks up at the guest star, Kenny Rogers and goes, Hey, Kenny, can you find someone to cover on stage? (laughs) To be fair. (laughs) That's not Kenny's job. It's not, but he just trusted Beauregard. He's probably, and he's probably concussed. Let's be completely honest. Okay, he may be concussed. That's fair. But Kenny goes, rolls with it like he does throughout the entire episode. He just rolls with all the craziness and he sends Zoot out to entertain the folks. Um, But the doctor has a good prognosis. And for some reason, Beaker is backstage with a a, a hospital bed. (laughs) They don't explain that at all. Well, they kind of explain it later. It's explained later. It's uh... experimental. Yeah. And uh, Kermit goes, give me that thing. I've got an idea for an act. And this act is awesome, and it's probably racist. <laughs> so here's the thing. 
He put the lime in the coconut, he drank them both up. He put the lime in the coconut, drank them both up. He put the lime in the coconut, drank them both up. He put the lime in the coconut. He called the doctor, woke him up, and said, Doctor, ain't there nothing I can take? I say, Doctor, to relieve this flipper ache. I said, Doctor, ain't there nothing I can take? I say, Doctor, to relieve this flipper ache. Now let me get this straight. You put the lime in the coconut. You drank them both up. It gets progressively more so. Um, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll let you introduce it, and then we'll we'll go into my random tangents. So Kermit's in a hospital bed, and he starts singing a song called Coconut, uh, which is a Harry Nilsson song. And he's attended to by a doctor and two nurses. But as the song goes on, the doctors and the nurses start to Africanize. Um, they 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 start to take on in, in especially the the doctor himself who is a talking turning into a witch doctor which we've seen the witch doctor before but this is a big freaky witch doctor bone through his nose crazy hair ODB type hair actually <laughs> he looks like his hair looks like the cover of uh, oh, wow. the first of, of the first ODB album actually you're not wrong shimmy, shimmy, y'all, shimmy, yeah, shimmy, yeah. give me the mic so I can take a whip. And uh, and so he goes full on witch doctor, and then as the song goes, it also transitions to the jungle, mm-hmm. uh, presumably the jungles of Africa, where we continue to sing the song. Now, before before you start, I will say I find the song is catchy as hell. The performance is great by everybody, but so I've got a couple of notes. One, her eyes those cornrows i was not expecting to see cornrows on anything in the 70s if i'm being completely (laughs) honest um that was a surprise secondly there is it's fallen largely out of favor for obvious reasons but there is an old trope called darkest africa trope and you would see it in a lot of pulp serials where an ostensibly white protagonist would end up in africa and they would play the part of doc samson or maybe even a proto indiana jones or tarzan tarzan part of that too tarzan's Tarzan is part of that, but I think Tarzan's sort of a weird prototype for it. Um, and that I have an entire rant about how Tarzan is actually racist, but that's a whole separate thing. But the darkest Africa trope is something that falls away over time. I think the last time we really saw it was probably in Jumanji, like the old Robin Williams Jumanji. Right. But that wasn't played up in the way that you would see it here with anthropomorphizations of cultural stereotypes. It was just man versus environment. And the entire bit is supposed to be played, I think, as a fever dream, which weirdly insinuates that Kermit is racist and not the show. But... It's, yeah, you're, you're right. It kind of does. If this is if this is like Kermit's dream, or this is what Kermit go, is going through Kermit's head is his fantasy, then his fantasy is a little needs updated. <laughs> the number kind of swings. It's a well. The lime and the coconut thing is something I think that I don't know if I've ever actually heard the full song, but you've heard like snippets of it here and there all over the place. Yes. Um, yeah. but it's it is a good bit. It's just an unfortunate staging. It is, and like the thing is that. The problematic aspects of this persist at least as long as the 80s, because I remember there's an episode of Amazing Stories that had a very young Seth Green on it, which is racist as hell. Having Seth Green is racist? No, no, not Seth Green. (laughs) Seth Green was cast in a show produced by Steven Spielberg that happened to be balls-ass racist. So the premise of the show is that Seth Green and his brother are two very poorly behaved children, because Seth Green was a child star. 
And this yes, is pretty early in his career. This is like 80s. See, Thomas Howell still had a career. It was a weird time. They like missed out Firestyle. They just go through a bunch of different babysitters. And then his mom hires this woman who is simultaneously the magical black woman that won't take no guff and a witch doctor. <laughs> and the darkest Africa trope just takes over their apartment. And she's a, she's a mammy and a witch doctor. Yeah. It was an interesting one. <laughs> I have it on the DVD. Cause I've got the first season of amazing stories on DVD. And I don't, I used to watch reruns of it on the sci-fi channel all the time. And I'd never saw this until I got the DVDs. If you call me in the morning, I'll tell you what to do. So we come backstage and, um, yeah. And, uh, they, uh, the, 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 um, Arabs are still drilling in the dressing room and it's getting pretty loud. Kenny complains that their camel stepped on his guitar and they said, don't worry, we'll buy him another guitar. And then Scooter says, you know, well, Kermit still hurt. And he, they're like, don't worry, we'll buy you another frog, <laughs> which again was like you said earlier is playing on that stereotype of them just throwing money at things. But, uh, and then there's just a little bit of business of Kenny and Scooter trying to communicate with each other because of how loud everything is in the room. Um, and that's it, but it's just more, it's just more of this, um, sadly, completely unnecessary storyline. Yeah. Like you said, that adds nothing to the episode. What does add something to the episode is flying frogs. So we get our Muppet News Flash. Because usually anytime (laughs) the Muppet Newsman is on, he's the one that's getting hurt. This is like his one coupon. (laughs) So the Muppet Newsman comes out and he does something he doesn't do often. He references an earlier sketch, which I thought was cool. Muppet Labs has just announced that they are recalling their latest model hospital bed used in the lime and coconut production number. The beds were built on an assembly line formerly used for pop-up toasters. And you get a flying frog. (laughs) It just comes crashing onto the newsman's desk as Kermit is sprung from his, uh, his gurney and, uh, and, and you're right. The newsman takes, doesn't take a hit. Uh, he gets, he ignores it or he, he, uh, he avoids any damage this time. But, uh, they, this episode has got a lot of just empty ragdolling Muppets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I bet they had a lot of fun doing this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kermit's injured yet again. And, uh, he's backstage in a wheelchair and, uh, Piggy keeps trying to get Fufu to make him feel better. He once again denies that he is Fufu's dada. The kid is not his son. But Fufu is also a squirrel. Fufu looks like a dog, but Fufu does that classic squirrel move where they just cause a car accident and then look at you. Yeah, because Fufu ends up crash ends up uh, causing Kermit to go down the back stairs in, in a way that we haven't seen since, I think, Fozzie on roller skates. <laughs> Very similar to Fozzie on roller skates as he goes down the back stairs, injuring Kermit even more. And this is when my five-year-old was like, Kermit's getting hurt. I was like, yeah, kid, I know. Yeah, should I explain to you why I think it's funny? <laughs> I don't I don't know. How do you how do you explain to a five, almost six year old who's worried about her favorite character? How do you explain to her, but honey, it's okay, it's funny. Um it's a, t- it's a tough one. Yeah. Why are you and mommy laughing? Well Schadenfreude. It's entirely Schadenfreude. Robin comes out. My uncle Kermit isn't quite himself today. He sort of keeps falling down on the job. <laughs> So I thought I'd come out here as heir apparent. Robin! Just kidding, Uncle Kermit. Anyway, I'm here to introduce tonight's guest star. I really love his singing, and this is a really great song. At least I think it is. I'm not old enough to understand it. (laughs) And then we get 
the Kenny Rogers centerpiece of the episode, in my opinion, the dramatization of his famous song, The Gambler. Kenny is on a train with three uh, elderly men. The men are pu- their men are puppets. They are full-sized, lifelike, uncanny valley foam latex puppets. I called this nightmare fuel adjacent. There's something weird, like, so the original concept for the storyteller, which we'll get to in a later episode, was that John Hurt, John Hurt's character would entirely be a Muppet. Um, and I imagine it would have looked something like one of these. But these don't scare me the same way that, like, the the animals in the Bremen one did or the babies do. And it still leans into the Uncanny Valley, but something about the fact that they're, they don't look cartoonish, they just sort of look lived in. Like, I wouldn't want any of these chasing me down a dark hallway, but God, no. it doesn't throw me off the same way, I guess. See, this was literal nightmare fuel for me as a kid. I was terrified of this number as a kid. I knew this song because, again, back in my parents' car, a lot of Kenny Rogers and The Gambler. That's a big one. You hear it a lot. And I knew every word to The Gambler probably when I was six years old. But this number would come on and I would leave the room as a kid because it was, to me, it was terrifying. So he's singing the song The Gambler and... and he gives up in the chorus. He gives up. To, it, 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 it turns the song into kind of a give and take into a, a conversation between Kenny and the Gambler. Kenny's the narrator and the Gambler's kind of talking. You gotta know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Know when to walk away and know when to run. You never count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting. When the deal is done. He asked for a cigarette. And he asked for a shot of whiskey. Ah, uh, the 70s. <laughs> when a family show has the lead guest star handing another pup, handing a puppet a cigarette. Um, they were in the smoking section of the train. But if you know, if you know the song, there's a moment near the end of the song where the gambler dies. He passes away in his sleep, which he says is the best you can ask for is to just die in your sleep, which is a pretty bleak and yet fairly legitimate point of view. And the gambler dies. And in the song, Kenny just sings the rest of the song. But in this. <laughs> you got to know when to hold up. When to hold up. Know when to fold up. Know when to walk away. And know when to run. That's right. You never count your money. No, sir. When you're sitting at the table, there'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. <laughs> the ghost of the gambler steps out of his body into the foreground and starts singing along and dancing. <laughs> and it's insane. He's a force ghost. He does become a force ghost. It's insane, though. It is so crazy that they just have this ghost show up and and he's and he's like basically tapping and he's singing along. He's way happier in death than he ever was in life. <laughs> and uh, I love this number, despite my fears of it as a child. I'm a big fan of this number. And every time the ghost pops out, I'm like, they didn't. They're not going to make this guy. Go- uh, they made him a ghost. I thought it was a really nice, really solid number. This might make one of my lists for the end of the season, depending on how the rest of it goes, honestly. But it's. It's solid. I thought it was good. Had you ever heard the song? I'd heard the song, but the song is memed. So at this point, I don't think I'd ever actually given a solid listen to the lyrics. I could have told you that it had something to do with gambling, but I didn't. 
And there was some sort of a, a mentor-mentee-esque relationship, but I couldn't have told you anything else about it. Like, I, I can go on a full hour-long rant about how I hate the Pina Colada song, but this holds a similar cultural spot in the back of my mind, but I don't have the same familiarity with it. So then we get our UK spot, which feels like a UK spot. Hmm. It's Fozzie and his mom and a bunch of other whatnots singing an old surprise, surprise, another music hall song. It's uh, it's a kind of a weird one. Yeah, um, Fozzie looked uncomfortable, so I assumed that there was something vaguely salacious. But at the well, at the end, they're singing "What a Rotten Song." They're chanting "What a Rotten Song," and it's it's a really weird moment. But uh, my wife was con- now Fozzie has worn this outfit before, but I think in the wake of Link's leather daddy look, <laughs> he's a bear. She was a little. She, he is a bear. <laughs> She was a little, she was a little like, Fozzie too? We just need Emmett on stage as an otter. Yeah, <laughs> we just need Emmett. That's right. We just need Emmett. I, I don't have anything to say about Knees Up, Mother Brown. It's a, it's a, it's a musical song. It's one of those numbers. It's good to see Fozzie's mom. Hmm. Good to see Fozzie's mom. We get our uh, veterinarian's hospital and guess who the patient is? Oh, uh, it's not easy being green. No, it's not easy being green. Especially, it's really not easy being green tonight. Uh, so Kermit is the patient um, who has to sit through, of course, the jokes. Now Piggy plays this up. P- Piggy plays this through the rafters because mm-hmm. it's her frog is is sick, and so she plays this very self consciously, <laughs> overacting, mm-hmm. plays this to the roof. Um, while Bob even comments on it. Um, the best joke being, uh, he's still breathing, but I think his pulse is weak. He must have. His pulse has stopped. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it's just, it's just a veterinarian's hospital, but this time Kermit's the patient. And um, and but then at the end, Piggy assures Kermit that he's safe. You know, you're you need to stay in the hospital where it's safe. And then the light fixture just f- crashes down on top of them. So I was expecting it to hit Kermit. I was not expecting it to catch Piggy. Then we have another Muppet newsflash. And uh, there's been a recall now on the light fixture used in the veterinarian's hospital sketch. (laughs) And all manufacturing of that light fixture has been dropped. And of course, at that moment, here's the thing is the Muppet newsman may escape one segment with that without injury, but he's not making through two. He might not even make it through the episode. (laughs) Maybe it guarantees the second Muppet news flash. Yeah, exactly. There is no guarantee of ever getting a second one. So he takes the, falling lamp in the head. Kermit comes out on stage and crutches and Piggy's trying to trying to hold on to him. He's like, he's like, I don't need your help. And uh, he introduces the next act <clears throat> with the great Gonzo. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I will once again defy death and good taste. <laughs> May I have a drum roll for my catapult, please? Uh-oh. Help! Gonzo is, is going to try to shoot himself from a catapult and Skyright handles Hallelujah Chorus in the air. And uh, but the, so he's got this giant catapult and he's got his helmet and he he calls over for uh, and he, but he can't get the catapult to work. Catapult's not working. And so he calls for Kermit of all people. Now Gonzo knows that Kermit's hurt. I don't know why he calls for Kermit. He wanted him to partner with him on the bit. 
Yeah, I mean, it's true. He did want he did want him as a partner. And so Kermit and Piggy come out to help Gonzo with this catapult. And of course, they end up getting catapulted in an amazing shot. One shot. They are catapulted into the balcony with Statler and Waldorf, ragdolled through the air on this balcony. But it's done in one shot. <laughs> There's, did you notice? There's no cut. Yeah. They, they launch them from this catapult into the box. I don't know how many takes they must have done, but it is in one take and it is awesome. And Piggy and Kermit go crashing in the Statler and Walters box. But it is so cool. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's violent and funny. <laughs> but I, I was just like, man, that was a nice, whoever nailed that shot, that was a nice shot. That's Gonzo's act. And of course, he gets very upset that Piggy and Kermit have stolen his act. Gonzo's having a rough night. I feel like Gonzo has a lot of rough nights. So Kermit and Piggy stand up in Statler Wardorf's box. They're, of course, not happy to be there. They're a little beat up. Piggy, I think Piggy's concussed because she asked, where are we? <laughs> so I think Piggy's hit her head. Uh, Kermit's like, this has been nuts. And it has been nuts. And he says, we need to calm things down. Hey, Kenny, can you come out here? And so Kenny comes out with his guitar and he starts singing. And he, he wants to bring things down and calm things down. And he starts singing a song called Love Lifted Me, which was a big hit of his. Um, it's actually based on a hymn. Uh, and it was written in 1912 by Howard Smith and James Rowe. And, but it was a, but Kenny, Kenny turned it into like a, a pop song. And, um, and it's just a, a big, turns into a big sing-along where Kenny starts singing this very simple song. And he, he lays it out like this is a very simple song. You know, I w- there's no excuse for you not to sing along. And then a couple of Muppets join him on stage to sing, and a couple more Muppets, a couple more Muppets. And then every- Statler, Waldorf, Piggy, and Kermit are singing along, and then the crowd is singing along, and it just ends up in a, in a big, sweet sing-along. Yeah. I normally don't like my Muppet Show numbers to be so low-key, but I actually thought this worked. We've we've had a very balls to the wall episode. Those things, like exactly, exactly. I don't think we had much of any. I mean, maybe you could argue not not even really for the hospital sketch. It's it was a pretty like hard running episode all the way through. It's packed. This episode moves. Yeah, and so I think they were very. It's just I thought very smart of them to understand that and have Kermit say, "Hey, this episode's been going too fast. Let's let's." Let's uh, let's wind down. You know, mm-hmm. it's like how you have to how you have to cool down after a long jog, right? <laughs> it's like let's let's just bring it down a little bit, and he does. Um, and said it's not normally my cup of tea for a closer. I prefer my closers to be kind of funny or um, or a little big, big and brassy. But uh, this just ends kind of sweetly. You know, there's something about when the Muppets sing together. There's something about that, mm-hmm. um, which is why they're so good at like Christmas specials and stuff. Is there something magical about the Muppets singing Silent Night together or something? You know? Not to me, not as memorable as the Gambler. The Gambler is definitely the the standout piece for the episode. But I, yeah, and they could have closed with that, but I feel like it doesn't it doesn't marry the I say marry the front and backstage stories, but I'm disregarding the actual backstage story in exchange for the one that's laced throughout the episode. The one that the one that that does come back at the end where. Um, because uh, during the number, we find out that they actually have struck oil underneath the theater, which goes to, which begs the question, why are there ever any more episodes of The Muppet Show? But uh, Kenny has made a deal for some gasoline, <laughs> um, which again is probably a reference to the uh, gasoline prices at the time being through the roof in the, in the late Carter administration. Hmm. So he's made a deal with gasoline to, for, to give the Arabs singing lessons. So um, that part's not totally offensive. It's just... 
I don't know. And then, then they all come to say good, good, goodbye. And I noticed during the song and then during this, the gambler is in the background. Mm-hmm. So they, I think they did that so the kids knew he really wasn't dead. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. Because <laughs> none of the other guys are there, but the gambler shows up two more times in these numbers. Like, don't worry, kids. It was just an act. I'm not really dead. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm just a thing of like polyurethane and, and stitching and, and fabric and stuff, but I'm not really dead. <laughs> What is felt can ever die. You know, we talked about this with Spike Milligan. What was great about the Spike Milligan episode is that it all sucked. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that it was racist and the fact that it had these problems, that didn't matter because I have no desire to go back and rewatch the Spike Milligan episode because it wasn't funny. Mm-hmm. This is a good episode that does have this little bit of a marring um, that is marred a little bit by this backstage story with the oil drilling. And it's a shame just because the rest of it's so good. Well, and there's also the Wish Doctor. Mm-hmm. So there's a, it's got a couple of big strikes against it and the rest of it is really good. So it's, it's that to me makes it a very enjoyable episode, but it makes it more difficult to enjoy and talk about than something like Spike Milligan, because this is, this is an example of it, of a good episode having some racist stuff in it. I don't know. What you, I don't know what you think about it. It's just a, it's, it's, it makes it, it's a little more conflicting, you know? The thing is the, the Arab jokes were so one note that, for I don't know if this says something bad about me, but it's really quick and easy to just ignore them. They don't add anything. They're not integral. Like I honestly kind of tuned out when I saw those things coming. Not not just because of the the cultural offense, but just because it's it's not innovative. It doesn't. It feels lazy. Yes, it does. Like on top of all of the other issues with it, it it does just kind of feel like let's tell a joke about Arab people as a whole, I guess. It's also, it's also making the episode more difficult for them because it adds a whole storyline that doesn't do the episode any good. It doesn't. So pay I feel off. like they actually, uh, yeah, it doesn't. I mean, it kind of pays off. They strike oil. They have the little thing with Kenny. It, they do end up striking oil. So it does pay off, I guess. It doesn't pay off comedically, but it, if you just lifted it, and I don't mean like Disney plus cutting it out. I don't think they should do that clearly, mm. but I mean, if, if you were going back in time and restructuring this episode, if you lifted that storyline, you have a really good episode. Again, the witch doctor thing is a, a different topic from there. I, th- I think they're very different occasions of, of, of problematic material, but yeah, so it makes the episode, uh, I almost didn't show it to my kids. Mm-hmm. Looking back on it, maybe I shouldn't have because <laughs> Kermit they did they didn't like Kermit getting beat up, and maybe the gambler will give them nightmares. So maybe I shouldn't have. Um, like I didn't show them Spike Milligan. I almost didn't show them this, um, but I was like, but there's enough good stuff in it that I want them to see. And yeah, so it's just kind of not a bummer, just kind of uh, you know um, one of the pitfalls of doing something like this, of looking at things, you know, of, of going back and looking at these television shows as much as we love them made in the 1970s you know Mm -hmm. next time gonzo goes bombay so next time we've got episode number 411 with dancer and singer lola lola falana i don't know anything about her and then uh episode 412 with 1971's miss america phyllis george you know at lunatic daring on social media, lunaticdaring.com, 
leave us a review, you know, all the stuff I said at the beginning. Uh, But we'll be back talking about those two episodes. I have been Chad. I have been Nick. And thank you for listening. Feet of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. What's the hard hat for? I want to be ready in case they start throwing pigs at us again. <laughs> <laughs>